Chapter Four of the Lady of the North Star by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A puzzling scent. The following morning, Corporal Bracknell was early astir, but early as he was, there were others earlier, for the smell of frying moose meat reached him before he was dressed. When he left his room, he found Rayner awaiting him. "'You are early, Corporal,' was the greeting. "'Yes, I thought of going out as far as the place where we went together last night.' "'What, before breakfast? Surely there is no need for such haste, and remember that there will be no daylight for at least a couple of hours yet.' "'That is so, but—' An Indian servant appeared from somewhere in the rear of the house, bearing a silver coffee-pot on a tray. Rayner pointed to it with a smile. "'That settles the matter, I fancy. Breakfast is being served. You will not allow it to spoil, I am sure.' "'It is a convincing argument,' laughed the corporal. "'I will breakfast first and attend to duty afterwards.' Rayner nodded and led the way into the room where they had dined on the previous night. Places were laid for four at the table, but neither Miss Gargrave nor her foster sister had yet appeared. "'We are a little early for the ladies,' said Rayner, seating himself, but we will not wait for them. They may breakfast in their room. The corporal took his place, and while they ate, conversed with his companion in a desultory kind of way. Both of them steadily avoided any reference to the events and conversation of the night before, and in the course of the meal the policeman learned a little more about his hostess's father. He was an odd kind of man, explained Rayner, when reference had been made to him. Came of a good stock in the old country, and was one of the pioneers up here. A man of culture, as a glance around the bookshelves will show you, and a man of business also. Some of the best mining properties in the north were secured by him, and unlike many of the Klondike millionaires, he made his home here, and he bought, regardless of cost, the old family estate in England. I think he meant to return there with his daughter some day, but the hard life of these wild lands had entered into his blood, and he... The sound of a feminine voice outside caught the officer's attention, and made him neglect what his companion was saying. He heard the outer door open and close. Then hurried steps sounded in the passage, and two people passed by the room in which he was seated. The door happened to be ajar, and the corporal saw that one was his hostess, and that the other was her companion and foster sister, Miss Lafarge. They were not late for breakfast because they had dallied in their rooms. They had been outside. As he realized this, a little frown of thoughtfulness puckered the corporal's forehead. Why had they been out at this early hour? And while it was still dark, Rayner noticed his preoccupation, and guessing the cause of it, suavely offered an explanation. Apparently I was mistaken about my cousin and Miss Lafarge. They are not the sluggards I thought they were. They have been outside while I thought they were still abed. They are very early, was the reply. Yes. There is a silver fox about, and Joy has a line of traps. She hopes to get it. 
I understand that its pelt is rare. Much rarer than it used to be, agreed the policeman absently. The explanation was a plausible one, but he did not find it satisfactory. He suspected that something other than a silver fox had taken Joy Gargrave and her foster sister into the woods in the darkness of the morning. He wondered what it was. Had his hostess missed the note which he had picked up the night before, and had she been out to look for it? He did not know. He could only guess, and wait impatiently for the coming of dawn. As soon as the first leaden light showed through the trees outside, he left the house. Rayner offered to accompany him, but the corporal declined the offer. "'Thank you. There's no need, Mr. Rayner. I shall be able to manage what I have to do alone.' "'You think I shall be in the way, corporal?' laughed the other. "'I did not say so,' answered Bracknell. "'But, of course, it is the simple truth that when one has a knotty thing to solve, solitude and quiet are sometimes helpful.' He went out and walked quickly from the house until he reached the bypath where he had made his startling discovery of the night before. As soon as he turned into it, his pace slowed, and he walked with his eyes fixed upon the ground. There were many footmarks in the snow, the most of them stale, as was shown by the powdery snow which had drifted into them. He recognized his own tracks of the night before going and coming from the point at which he had found Kuna Dick. And there were others apparently made about the same time. But those which arrested his eyes, as he turned from the main road, were a pair of freshly made, well-marked tracks, too small to have been made by the feet of men. He nodded to himself as he saw them, and began to follow them eagerly. After a couple minutes of walking, he was a little surprised, to find that the double trail that he was following turned from the path into the shadow of the trees. It was still almost dark here, but as he stooped over the tracks, he became aware of the fact which seemed to him to be full of significance. There was a third pair of footprints, not so recently made as the others, as the powdering of snow in them showed, and the tracks that he was trailing apparently followed them. He stooped and with his hand made a rough measure of the stale tracks and of one set of the fresh ones, with which they seemed almost identical. They were the same size, and about the two sets of impressions were little individual characteristics which were immediately discernible to the trained eye. Following her own tracks, he muttered softly to himself, now I wonder why. He could do no more than guess, and as that was not a very profitable occupation, he continued his search. The trail that he was following went but a little way into the forest, and then turned outward towards the path again, and presently reached the point at which he came abruptly to a standstill. Under a giant spruce, the lower boughs of which had been cut away at some time or another, was a medley of tracks which called for detailed examination. He stood regarding them for a moment, and then he looked around him. As he did so, he saw that the trail which he had been following moved forward from the huddle of tracks by which he had paused, and that they led into an open lane in the trees. 
He looked again, took a step or two forward, and then whistled slowly to himself. He was looking at the place where the body of Kona Dick had lain. The stained snow was hidden by freshly drifted snow, and the impress of the body, however, was still visible. And standing near it, Corporal Bracknell looked back. There was a clear line of vision from the place where the fallen man had lain to the great spruce in the shadow of which was that huddle of tracks. He went back to the spruce, bent over the trampled snow for a little time, and then, standing upright, looked towards the path. Then he nodded his head. "'She just stood here,' he murmured thoughtfully. "'There's the mark of the, her rifle stock in the snow, and those deeper tracks show that she stood waiting a little time. Then when Kona Dick came, she—but did she?' As he broke off and asked himself the question, he remembered Joy Gargray's face as he had first seen it when he had entered the dining-room at the lodge. It had not looked like the face of a girl who had quite recently shot a man, and though he recalled it with that look of terror which it had worn when he had first seen it, and again with that troubled look in the eyes when he had explained that Kunadik was the criminal that he sought, he felt that his reasoning and his reading of the trail must somehow be at fault. He stood considering the matter for a minute or two glancing now and again to the place where Kuna Dick had lain, and the frown which had come upon his face deepened. Then he recalled the note which he had picked up on the previous night, and the frown lightened a little. Of course, he whispered to himself, she discovered his loss and came out here to look for it. But had she shot the man whom he had hoped to make his prisoner? The man who unquestionably had written that note to her, he could not decide. And as it was too cold to stand still for long together, he began to walk in a rather wide circle round the scene of the tragedy. Then he made a fresh discovery. On the other side of the path, he found other footprints in the snow, and following the track reached a point where the person who had made them had quite evidently come to a standstill behind a clump of bushes. Corporal Bracknell looked through the screen of small branches, and once more found himself in full view of the place where Kuna Dick had fallen. The frown on his face deepened once more. He carefully examined the footmarks behind the bushes, and decided that they were at least some hours old. Probably they had been made the night before, and it was at least possible that the individual who had made them had witnessed the tragedy which had taken place. He began to follow the footmarks from the point at which they left the bushes, and had gone but a little way when he found that the trail was crossed by another almost at right angles, a trail much more deeply marked, and the first sight of which told him that either the person who had made it was a very heavy build, or had been bearing a considerable burden. Perplexed beyond measure, he stared at this new trail, and then he looked round. The tall spruce alone met his eye. The profound silence of the primeval north was over all. There was no sound of life anywhere. And yet he murmured to himself, there were quite a lot of people here last night, 
What were they all doing? Scarcely had the words slipped from him when he heard someone cough in the shadow of the wood, a little to the left of him. At once his bearing became alert. Moving silently from tree to tree in the direction from which the sound had come, he reached a point which gave him a view of an open glade. In the middle of the glade was a girl standing, looking down at the snow. He recognized her instantly. It was his hostess, Joy Gargrave. A minute or two passed, and then the girl began to move down the glade quickly. He waited until she was out of sight, and himself walked to the middle of the glade where Joy had stood looking down at the snow. Instantly he saw what had held her eyes. A dog team had been halted there. The marks of the runners were visible in the snow, even the places where the dogs had waited. Half filled with new snow were quite clear. His practiced eyes read the sign without trouble. The team had entered the glade, had apparently waited there a little time, and then had turned and departed in the direction followed by his hostess. Impulsively, he turned to follow also, but as he did so, caught sight of footmarks debouching from the trees in a direct line to the place where the sled had been halted. They were deeply marked, and as he recognized instantly, they were the same as those which he had been following, when the sound of the cough had attracted his attention. The person who had made them had followed a devious path making for the glade. He frowned to himself. The mystery was growing deeper. But as no solution of the affair offered itself to his mind, after a little delay, he began to follow the sled tracks down the glade, noting that side by side with them were the fresh tracks made by Joy Gargrave's moccasined feet. The glade led out into the main road from the river to the house and the sled tracks turned towards the river, and then were lost in the hard-packed snow of the road. But as the sled had manifestly turned in the direction of the river, Corporal Bracknell also turned that way, walking quickly and keeping a sharp lookout on either hand for any indication of the sled having turned aside. Two or three minutes' quick walking brought him in sight of the frozen river, and at the top of the bank, seated on a fallen tree, he perceived Joy Gargrave. Her back was towards him, and her bent head and hunched-up shoulders were eloquent of dejection. He moved towards her quietly, and as he drew nearer, a flutter of white caught his eye. It was the corner of a handkerchief which the girl was holding to her face, and apparently she was crying. A quick sympathy moved him as he stepped up to her, the snow deadening his steps. "'Miss Gargrave, you are in trouble. I wonder if I can be of any assistance.' Startled by the sound of his voice, the girl looked up, and for one fleeting moment he had a vision of the beautiful face tear-stained and the blue eyes full of trouble. Then the face was hidden in the handkerchief again and a succession of sobs was the only answer vouchsafed to him. He stood for a little while in silence, looking down at the shaking shoulders, his own eyes filled with sympathetic concern. 
Then he spoke again. Please, Miss Gargrave, let me help. I'm sure your trouble is very grave. At that she looked up again, her face expressive of deep misery. I am in deepest trouble, she said brokenly. I do not think that you or anyone else can be of help to me. Tell me, he urged, at least let me try. She sat for a moment in thought, her eyes veiled by the long lashes, and then she lifted her head and looked at him as if she would measure his quality. Then she broke out impulsively. Yes, she cried, I will trust you. I will tell you all. Perhaps you can help me. At least you can give me advice. Then let us walk, he said quickly. You will freeze if you sit there long. He offered her his hand, and as she took it, their eyes met, and in the corporal's there flashed a new light, and as he turned and fell into step at her side, his heart was beating tumultuously, and his blood was running as if heated with a generous wine. End of chapter 4